out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the Hepburns, the Welsh indie band from South Wales, Southwest Wales, in fact, who have been going for decades and they have a new album that has just come out this September 2020, which we'll talk about very soon. But uh, yeah, this is with Matt Jones. And um, after several minutes of casual chat, as you do in the world that is showbiz, we got down to that very exciting subject that were the interesting sort of formative years when music suddenly became a thing. Matt, it's over to you. Well, it was, it was not dissimilar, really. I mean, I was born in 63, so... Um, and it was, um, it was similarly, you know, when I was... Um, uh, I think the first... Um, my first recollection in my mind of the, of the songs that I was, I was listening to... I, I can remember the Beatles when they were, you know, when they actually were... When they still, when they still existed, when they were still releasing records. I can remember... Um, oh, Penny Lane was one of my earliest musical memories. And I, I adored, I adored them, you know. And it was um, that that reminds me of my very early childhood. Actually, was uh, and you know they they remain, I suppose, you know, my my favourite bands, you know, over all the years, and probably the biggest influence, you know, the tune, the tunefulness, just the melodies of it, like was um, that was my first awakening, I think. But I used to listen to Ed Stewart, you know, Junior Choice, yes, and the, those yes. Saturday morning shows, and. Um, and that was a real musical education. And it was, it sounds strange, doesn't it? But anything like from, you know, Charlie Drake, you know, my boomerang won't come back or, yes. uh, or fixing a hole, you know, Bernard Cribbins. Um, all those songs were, um, I mean, they were, they were amusing and they were entertaining to, you know, to, to a child, but, um, but they were lyrically really, really rich, you know, and they, they, were, they all had narratives in them. And I, um, I, I could always um, recall lyrics really well, you know, and I'd sing along to them. And, and of course, he used to play the same types of uh, or the same records week in, week out. So I got to know those tunes. And uh, so yeah. that was the other side of it. Was uh, always always a love of um, of good lyrics and a good a good story, you know. Yeah. But then when it, when I got a little bit older, it was exactly the same as you. I do remember I remember Space Odyssey being out, and it was a fantastic record, you know. Uh, and I loved that tune for the very same reasons. It was it was a beautiful tune, and it was a fantastic lyric. And I, and it really, um, uh, it caused me a lot of, you know, uh, as a child, spiritual pain, you know, to think that he was out there lost yes, in space. Yes, absolutely. You know, and, and drifting away. And I used to ask my mother, I said, you know, is he going to be okay? <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it were, they were magical things to me. They were, you know, as I said, it was very, uh, you know, the whole, well, of course, I mean, there were, there was a real sort of, um, there were real astronauts in those days as well, weren't they? So the whole... But the uh, but this particular you know that that song you know um, yeah that yeah was, it was quite was, it was quite a haunting narrative because before then it was kind of yeah. interesting you mentioned the Beatles because because I can vaguely yeah. remember watching the Beatles films you know sort of yeah. the excitement of them and they were still yeah. quite you know yeah they, you know there was still a lot of chat and I I suppose I can't really you know honestly remember them happening mm. at the time I mean I don't want to rewrite my narrative but I, yeah. I sort of it was kind of about 72 73 when I kind of start to think yeah I could really can re recall things but then I sort of realized mm. the Beatles had only broken up for two years hadn't they you know it was like yes of course it well, was that's just... right. well, well I, I was a year older and I think that I, I could I can remember you know I, I have you know a childhood memory of hearing their of hearing their songs but I've, I, I must have put it together that you know um in my own mind since then as an adult like that they were still 
they still existed. You know what I mean? It was just to me, though, you know, it was just another song on the radio, but songs that I loved nonetheless. Um, it would have been, I, I think, I, I definitely do remember hearing Penny Lane on the radio. So it must have been late 60s or, or maybe it was early 70s, perhaps after they broke up. But it's certainly, um, you know, one of the songs that, you know, that. Uh, that became etched on my mind. I would, I would I say, just to say something there, because I can, yeah. I do remember being in love with a song that Silla yeah. Black used to do on the, yeah. the show. And I can't remember the show, but I remember the intro, which was Step Inside Love. And yeah. it was so dramatic and exciting. And then decades yeah. later, I realised it was written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Yeah, yeah. Step Inside I, I, I just, Love. And the drama of that song was like, oh yeah, this is incredible. I know, it's fantastic, isn't it? And the way, the way that, Silly used to sing it too. But that, that those first, that just the opening refrain, wasn't it? I step inside. And that, yes. that, yeah, that's she used to open the show with that tune, didn't she? I, so I can that, remember I that because that was a song, and I was also a big fan of the Carpenters. They were on yeah, the me too, show. me too, yeah. yeah. The lyrics of I, the Carpenters I, and Burt Backrack, they were all you know, even though I was yeah. like ten, I just loved all this kind of well, romantic melancholia. I, I think we got exactly the same type of musical taste because <laughs> I always loved Burt Baccarat. So from, from a child, from a kid, yes. I just couldn't get over um, Do You Know The Way To San Jose was one of those ch tunes in my head when I was a little boy, you know? And, and, and as an adult, like, I, you know, um, you know, fixated on him, like, but it was, it was those tunes, you know, and, um, you know, um, you know, um, the Dion Warwick one, what is it now, you know, um, the moment I wake up before yes. I can, you know, say a little prayer. Say a little yeah, prayer. I, I, I can remember them from when I was a kid. I, they they def definitely goes back to that era. It was, you know, when they were being played. I mean, it was such a fantastic era, but, but when, when, after we formed the band, though, Burt Bacchera became quite a very, a very sort of tangible touchstone, you know, we sort of, um, uh, you know, when, when we when we became clever and adept enough, we could actually reference them, that sort of stuff. You know, but but anyway, the the tunes were, as I said, very much inscribed. You know, you know, on on my soul, and you know, and on my brain, like you know, from from a child. Yeah. But Silla as well. I mean, um, I remember I remember she had that singer, um, the you know, oh you are a mucky kid. Remember, oh you are a mucky kid. Do you remember yeah. when she did, she did a Liverpoolian accent, like you know. Yeah. But it was probably, as you said, the, the McCartney tunes and the um, and the uh, uh, the Baccarat tunes that um, you know that I remember her for, and you know I remember that era for. Yeah. I think, uh, and the, the glam era after that was yeah there was Bowie like which was um, you know yeah which was a, a kind of a big thing. But my first record wasn't very cool at all. It was. Uh, it was the Black Eyed Boys by Paper Lace. I remember that. Do you remember that song? It was. Uh... I remember, yes, I remember Paper Lace, but I can't remember which one of their greatest hits. I, I kind of because there was people oh, like well. Peters and Lee. But what? How did that one particularly go? It sort of. It sort of was. Oh, the Black Eyed Boys. They motorcycle into town. It was just a terrible song. It was a really. It was a faux rock and roll tune, you know, because glam had gone that way. Yeah. It was like mud, you know, sort of mud and sweet and whatever. Like they were playing. Well, Shwadi Wadi were the worst, weren't they? They were playing just faux rock and roll, you know, some sort of really strange. It wasn't glam rock even. It was just like, but it was, it, well, Eddie I don't know Cochran, what you call it. wasn't it? It was, it, it was. was. Cochran, but, were, uh, but, you know, but it's, they're, all, they're all influential on this. I think, um, but there were, there were other big, big things as well, which, I, which I've got to mention. Like, um, my mum was a huge fan of Jake Thackeray and oh. she had some of his records, you know, and, um, and I used to love those for the very same reason. I just couldn't get over the lyrics. I just... Uh, and I've been a lifelong fan. I mean, a lot of the lyrics these days, um, particularly on PC, you know, but but I can remember on again, on again, and, um, you know, La Di Da, when they were singles, when they were out. Yes. Um, and, and of course, I was smitten with Jack Thackeray because they had a, 
He had a wonderful voice. They were beautiful, like jazz, you know, inflected tunes. But lyrically, he was a master, you know? I mean, um, he, could, he could tell a joke and tell a story, um, but the songs were, again, this is, this is an adult talking now. I didn't know this as a kid, but as an adult, I realized that he could, um, he had a gift, not just for narrative, but to be funny and serious at the, t at the same time, that was the thing, you know. Okay. They were bittersweet songs, you know, they were sad yes. and funny, you know, and, uh, mm. um, and that's something, you know, that's something I've, I've you know, um, myself, like, aspired to, you know, to, uh, to be able to do that. And, um, but Jake was the master of it. He I, I didn't know that he was influenced by, you know, by French songwriters and by Serge Gainsbourg and all these people. I didn't realise that. But, uh, yes. Um, and again, the music too, you know, that all the, those, those jazzy French chords, you know, and, um, you know, um, they were very influential, um, you know, when I came to actually be able to write tunes. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an incredible education, wasn't it? What a time to actually be growing up. Yeah. And listening I mean, to music, I sort of, you know. I, I had a brother who was seven years older than me, so right. but he was born and, but he, he had sort of all these prog rock records that I really yeah. became quite obsessed with because I'd sneak into his room when he wasn't there and play you know, yes, oh, yeah. Genesis and Barclay James Harvest and Wishbone Ash, but he also had a deep purple record and he had a Black Sabbath and he also had Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and the Beatles. Song. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I sort yeah. of played all these all the time, you know, and at the time, you know, you're thinking, God, there was no <laughs> cultural reference to, you know, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, the album, or Sgt. Pepper, they were like just albums, you know. Yeah. And you yeah, know, I loved, you know, there was a track by the Beatles called Good Morning on side two, which I thought was just stunning. I thought it was just yeah. the best mm. song ever. So I kind of got yeah. all that. And so when punk came along, that didn't at all come into my life because I was probably only yeah. 11 at the time. It was only right. much later. So did you have a sort of a yeah. little bit of a punk moment? or did? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because I was, um, so not, not, I wouldn't say 1977, probably about around about 1978. So I came... Um, I mean, it was punk and new wave. So the um, there was a, a long list of bands that made a huge impact. Probably, you know, a list that well, most people would it would be the same at the time. Um, the jam, like, was sort of just a you know, just I just thought they were absolutely brilliant. I loved the jam, but I also loved. Um, I wasn't. I don't think I was a huge fan of the, of the out and out punk bands. Like, you know, um, I um, I did get the Sex Pistols album. You know, uh, I got. You know, and never mind the, yeah. and then given give an up rope by the Clash. They were um, no. The story behind that is we didn't um, we didn't actually have a record player. So um, for Christmas uh, 1978, our parents bought us a record player, and they asked us what we'd like. You know, for, and obviously records. You know, and it was given enough rope and the Pistols album that were the first um, like you know modern era albums that we that we bought. Like, you know, yes. they were the first grown up records that we bought. So was that the first? Was that the first record player in the house? Um, no, we, we'd um, we'd had one like as kids. I mean, we used to listen to George Formby records and the the Spinners. I remember, and also the Jake Thackeray records on a record right. player. But for a while, for some reason, we didn't have a record player. Um, and then they brought us this music centre with a cassette player on it yes. and a radio and a record player. Because we, so didn't, I don't know why we, we were, my we, parents didn't have a record player because I think my, when they got married in the fifties. They kind of had to sell everything, and I think most people that's what you did. So we yeah, didn't have yeah. until the early seventies, <clears throat> and that's yeah. when you know people started bringing in records in the house. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, for a while there, we we were we were recordless, we were barren. So maybe it was the same thing. You know, it was um, my dad was in and out of uh, of jobs. You know, it was um, 
you know, he'd, he'd worked in the steelworks, he'd worked down a coal mine, he'd worked, he'd done various things. I think at the time he was, uh, he was either an insurance salesman, he was also, he used to go around filling up um, condom machines, you know, he was, uh, so he was, he was in and out of jobs. So maybe, maybe they had had to sell it or something, but, but it came back with a vengeance. And then after that, we never looked back again. I mean, I, um, say in 1978, I was probably listening to XTC, who I obviously adored and still do. Yeah. And the tones, obviously, I, uh, I love them. Again, it was it was tuneful stuff, and if it was lyrically good as well, then I would be sold, you know. Um, yes. Which hence the jam, you know. So Paul Weller was a massive, massive influence. I I wanted to be him when I was eighteen, you know, definitely. No, well, no question for that. So when the when the decade changed, the eighties, because that's mm. got in in seventy nine. So you mm. were sort of at that kind of late teenage period, I guess, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was. I was just reminiscing today that it was. Um, in, in my lifetime, my, the first um, election that I voted in would have been, um, yeah, she, she took, did she take the power, she took over the Conservative Party in 79. When was the first election? Was it in 79, was it? That she, yeah, that she went? she got in. Then we had the Falkland War. And we then, did, yeah, and the miners' strike, of course. Well, I think the first election I voted in was probably the next one, and I don't know if that was Michael Foote or Neil Kinnock, actually. But 83, wasn't it? Yeah. So was that, it must have been... 1983, I think it was Michael Foote, was, I think it was. But yeah, that was, um, I mean, obviously in Wales at that time, like it was a very, uh, you know, it was a very trying time. Like, you know, there was obviously the coal mines and the steelworks. They both, um, <clears throat> you know, they were both uh, under attack during that era, you know, yes. and it was like, you know, the, and the economy um, and the workforce was shrinking, you know, and the, all the, um, you know, so well, obviously the miners' strike, we can remember that. You know, my... my um, my grandfather was a miner. And yeah. He was still alive and mining at that time. My father had been. But my dad, by that time, we moved to Tlethi, which isn't a mining area, actually. Tlethi is a steel working area. Right. But it was, at that, at that time, it was still solidly working class and still had, um, you know, a sort of, yeah, there was still, a, there was still employment here. Uh, we were... Um, I went to um, I went to a grammar school actually, an actually boys grammar school. Right. And we were at the, uh, in, in, during that era. There was still there was still a kind of optimism that if you you know you went to school and you um, you know you passed your exams, you know that there would be some kind of job or some sort of future waiting for you. But I I think those, that expe that expectation started to erode in the eighties. You know the so reality you, of that. So did you do uh, did you go and do A levels and sixth form and that kind of stuff? Uh, I did for a while. I was I was very badly behaved though. After after about age sixteen, I was very rebellious, and even though I was really good at school, I um, I, I hated it. So I didn't want to stay there any longer than I had to. Right. So I started my A levels, and then I left. I left when I was seventeen, and uh, I ended up in art college though. So it was you know it wasn't all bad. They they let they allowed me in uh, to do a foundation year there uh, when I was seventeen. You know the classic yes uh, foundation. Yeah, and I, um, yeah, but it was kind of like, uh, it was all very, it was all, that period is all very, uh, yeah, as I said, I, maybe I should have stayed in school and got my A-levels and whatever else, but the foundation course didn't do me, didn't do me much good, so I had to go back and get my A-levels again, Right. <laughs> and then I went to, then I went up to Newcastle to do History of Art, and that was, uh, um, that was brilliant, that was fantastic, so I was, I was in Newcastle in 1982, and uh, the music was just fantastic, you know, it was just... I remember I saw like loads of bands in Newcastle City Hall up there. Yeah. Um, I saw bands like, um, well, I saw Echo and the Bunnymen up there. That was absolutely brilliant. I saw Lindisfarne do their Christmas gigs up there. You know, that was uh, not Excellent. exactly my cup of tea. I saw Rip Rig and Panic up there with yes. Cherry. Yeah. Um, 
saw Orange Juice at the Mayfair there. That was fantastic. Classic. Uh, I was I was I was a massive fan of Orange Juice, but they were they were kind of in their rip it up phase then. I think you know. Yeah. But, um, one of my favourite albums of all time though is um, You Can't Hide Your Love Forever. So that early Orange Juice stuff, all the, the postcard record stuff, Aztec yes. Camera, all those things, you know, were. So yeah, it was, um, and that was just before the Smiths, wasn't it? So. Well, I suppose because because we had you know in a simplistic way we had you know there was the punk period, wasn't there? Then post punk with bands yeah. like Gang of Four, Magazine, Peel, and then oh, you yeah. had the kind of early indie stuff, which I suppose were people like, you know, Simple Minds and U2 and Echo and the Bunnymen, and then '83 yeah. the Smiths appeared, yeah. and it all changed, yeah. doesn't it? Really, that's it right. Was, you're right, uh, uh, and it was um, it was Handsome Devil, wasn't it? And um, what difference does what it make? The, uh, and, I can't, yeah. yeah, there was just, they were just like, okay, this is it, you know, this is, and they kind of yeah. almost knocked bands, some bands. Oh, there was Big Country as well, wasn't there? But there was, they, there was just a lot, that kind of growth of the indie pop world, which I, I sort of put down yeah. between the years of 83 to 87, which are the years of the Smiths, um, yeah. as a kind of a glorious period. So you, you were sort mm. of, so you'd been in, were you still in Newcastle during? Well, yeah, I was. I was there between 82 and 84. And um, I remember, you know, and I was, I was traveling around the, around the country at the time. My, my girlfriend was down in Loughborough and I used to go down and visit her. Um, and um, I saw the Smiths, uh, I think in, it probably was around about then. I can't, I can't date it exactly, but it may have been around about 84. Um, uh, and they were, I saw them five times on, on that tour. I saw them in De Montfort Hall in Leicester. I saw them in Warwick University. Um, I saw them in um, in Stoke, I think it was as well. Right. It was a. I saw. Them, I was. I was obviously a big fan. Um, you know, that was, it was my next big sort of thing after after the jam. I think uh, I was yes. devoted. Were, to them were the were the red guitars supporting them on that? Yeah, tour? they supported them, and so and so did the telephone boxes as well. Um, I remember that. Do you remember the telephone boxes? No. Totally. They had a sort of, um, I, really, I really quite like them, but they, Red Guitars definitely supported them on that tour, yeah. Yes. I, I met Morrissey, actually, in Swansea University, in the gig in Swansea University. Excellent. <laughs> I, I, uh, I queued to, to go backstage, and um, and he really was, to me, he was just, you know, a god, you know? So I, uh, and again, it was the lyrics. Um, yeah. I think after I heard Re, Re, Re Around the Fountain, the Peel session, did literally change my life, you know? It was... Uh, it was just it was the most gorgeous song I'd ever heard, I think. Um, so I was I was writing lyrics at that time. So I was a I was a, a sort of budding lyricist and songwriter. Um, and I actually got in to see him backstage, and I gave him some of my poetry. Excellent. <laughs> so, this is good. And, and he told me he said I, I will study it later. He said to me, so that's all he said. I'll <laughs> study it later. Remember, he never, you know, well, he never got back to me, you know. But I hope he enjoyed it anyway. But uh, yes, you know. he would have done. But, it was a formative. It was a formative influence, though. The uh, and you know oh, that's, that, a, that's that was a great. Thing. That's a great story, actually. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I said it was. Uh, I was lucky to get back there, but we we queued for a while, and um, yeah, it was uh, it was brilliant. I I'd seen them from afar. You know, it's the sort of thing where um, you used to get to gigs early and and watch the watch them sound check and set yeah, up and everything. It was always, It was very exciting, wasn't it? You'd spend all day getting excited and worried. Well, all week playing the record, and then yeah, yeah, they, yeah. you know, came and you know, you just there was nothing else on your mind apart from going to the gig. Oh, I know, I know. It's incredibly it was, exciting. It was obsessive. And, uh, so then, so when did you discover, you know, a vo the voice and and being able to sing? Oh well, um, 
I'd always, I'd always loved, um, I'd always loved singing, and as I said, I'd always had an incredibly good memory for lyrics. So when I was a little boy, um, and I was in uh, infant school in Basingstoke, because we, I haven't lived in Wales all my life. We, I, we grew up in Hampshire um, between the ages of like more or less zero and uh, and eight. We lived in Basingstoke in Hampshire, see, in a, in, a, in a council house. So we sort of, um, and I remember in the infant school, whenever, um, whenever it was raining. Dinner ladies used to invite people to uh, to entertain the class, and I used to sing to the class. Nice. <laughs> like, so I like I had no qualms whatsoever. I was quite a, I was quite a shy child. I really was, but I had no qualms. This is the absolute truth. It's not I they're not embroidered at all because I used to surprise myself. I, and I'd get up and I'd sing, and I'd sing things like two little boys and stuff like that. Remember? The Harris it was a heartbreaking song. It was, it was, what a tune, you know, it was, you couldn't sing it without crying, could you really? Uh, you know, but it was, um, story. And, and I knew it, I knew it word for word, you know, yeah. so that was my party piece was to sing to the class, you know, two little boys, you know, but, uh, but after that, um, we sort of, well, there is, it is true. Like is it, the stereotype of a Welsh person is, you know, they love to sing. That's the stereotypical thing, but, but we had uh, the most fantastic hymns in school. I mean, Welsh language hymns are incredibly rousing, you know. So uh, I used to sing those with, with all our heart and soul, you know. Um, you know, uh, all the, all the, well, you wouldn't know them, but they're basically well-known Welsh hymns like Calon Lan, uh, etc. So, so there was that, there was that musical side of things. And um, so it was, I first discovered, you know, um, being able to, to sing and sing pop tunes when I was um, playing along, you know, and learning Beatles songs or learning Jake Thackeray songs, I, I taught myself the guitar. Yeah. I taught myself to play the tunes. I got basic chord books and things and so on. But I'd, um, I'd I, once I'd learned the chords, I would try and play these things by ear. Um, and, the and the next step after that was, you know, developing, um, yeah, to, you know, to try and write, you know, to try and actually write my own stuff. But it's like anything else. You only learn uh, how to write by copying other people, you know, yeah. so... So those influences, I, I learned, um, it was, it was just like a melting pot, whether I was learning jam songs or, um, by the time I, by the time the Smiths came along, I was already kind of capable of, uh, already of writing my basic tunes, probably, um, probably like after, um, as I said, Jake Thackeray and the Beatles, maybe a little bit of Orange Juice as well, for me, so maybe yeah. something like that, but by that, by that time, um, I'd already got a sense like of uh, the sorts of tunes that I could write or that I wanted to write, you know, but, um, and then the singing, yeah, well, obviously the singing kind of, kind of came with that, but I, I always, um, um, I think, you know, um, I always wanted a, when it came to singing, it wouldn't be, it was always very full blooded, you know, I sort of, uh, I've always, um, wanted to sing loudly and passionately. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, uh, you know, and, um, there was no uh, mumbling basically. Yeah, no, there was there was never any of that sort of thing. I think in in our music, there's always been a, you know, yes, it was it was never mumbling or sort of shuffling around or something. It was always it was always fully committed. You know, <laughs> it was. Uh, I don't think we were ever very cool, David. I don't think we ever were. I've always I've always and that's always been the thing. Like I was always uh, it was never anything premeditated about it. Like I no. I always loved I always um it was always invested like with a sense of. Uh, uh, compulsiveness, like you know, yeah, and sing, sing, singing to me, like you know, has always been um, a joyful act, you know, and, and writing and everything else, like, and I, um, you know, um, and I always, I always put that into the music, like it was always a case, like of, uh, 
yeah, it was a, it was always something. It sounded a little bit pretentious, like you know, but um, you know, it's always something that um, I had to do. Like you know, yes. it was never something I really particularly decided to do. And when, I once it once it took hold, it's you know, it's something I, I've done for like the last thirty five years. I'm st- we're still doing it now, like you know, but uh, so how but did the, so things... how did your band form? You know, obviously you saw the Smiths. That was a, your, a JFK moment. You met Morrissey. That was even better. Yeah. But then, you know, sort of 84. And then we had all those bands, you know, that you had the go-betweens. Yeah. Triffids, you know, you had uh, yeah. the June Brides. You know, there was a real mm. sense of that kind of guitar-based kind of slightly jingly yeah. sound that was kind of happening. And, and, you know, and obviously Morrissey flailing around. So then you, you <laughs> sort of, did you have a moment where you thought, right, I've got to be in a band. I'm not just going to Well, yeah, of course. We did, and I, I formed a band. The first band I ever formed was called Looking for Eric. It was, um, there, there was a, I think there was a, a film with, um, you know, uh, with Eric Cantona. Oh, um, yes. Some years later called Looking for Eric. But, I, but my first band, like years and years ago, like in like 1982 or 83, was called Looking for Eric. And we was just, a, it was a drum machine, and me and my brother Jim, uh, we played bass. Um, so th- those tunes, I would say, I wasn't very adept as a writer then, and they were yes. probably probably most closely resembled um, like a strange cross between Orange Juice and Echo and the Bunnymen, I would say. Right. They were quite. They were. They were all, it was always guitar based. It had to be guitar, you know. But the drum machine, um, uh, it worked pretty well with the, with the sound that we had. We, we used to play big gigs in Clenetley, um, um in like village halls or community halls, which were obviously they were sort of like little places, so they were packed out. Um, but we were quite noisy and post-punk, quite raucous. Yes. Um, and then, like a little bit of finesse came a little bit later on, you know, and they became a bit more tuneful. When, when I when I became more capable as a player and a writer. Right. So um, when did when did you think? Forget that name. We're going to be the Hepburns. Ah well, I um the story is I was I was playing as part of this uh, part of the um, looking for Eric became a band called Albert England. I no explanation for the name of the band at all. Um, and then I, um, we played a gig in Llanelli, which was a, a charity gig, and there was a band playing there that night, and they were called Gerald and the Infant. And there were three, three of the, the bass player, the drummer, and the guitarist were um, to be, well, the three founder members of the Hepburns, beside myself, Andrew Clements, um, Mike Thomas, and Howard Gravel, yeah? yeah? So they were Gerald and the Infant. So, now, my band was kind of like, you know, um, uh, it was kind of on and off, on and off all the time. There wasn't much commitment from the, from the various members of it. And these guys, like, were really polished. They had all their own gear. Uh, Howell had a fantastic, like, you know, uh, sort of, um, like, drum set. Every, there was, it was a gear thing, like, you know. My band, like, really struggled, you know. I had, right. we had like, an old Carl's Bram. The drummer, they didn't even have his own drums, you know. It was like, <laughs> and um, as I said, it was all a bit erratic. So I just formed an alliance with them in a very, very mercenary way. I saw right. I ended the other bands and I joined, well, I joined Gerald and the Infant, but we immediately renamed ourselves uh, the Hepburns. It wasn't unanimous. I thought it was a good name, you know. Uh, and then we just started practicing um, on the 1st of January, 1985. That is when we formed. And Mike's dad was a vicar. And we could have the use of the, the church hall in Llangenech, outside Llanelli, whenever we wanted it. It was perfect. Wow. So they had the gear, we had the location, and we used to rehearse about l- literally three or four times a week. Um, and that was the making of the bands. We, ma- we managed, you know, to, to put in that sort of thousand hours of practice or whatever it is. You know, yes. we sort of did that. 
that thing that you know and it is true like it was all it was like not it, it never seemed like hard work but we just had you know the inclination to go and play you know um uh you know regularly and often because we enjoyed it so much and we perfected our skills that way and by that time it's got to say that the smiths had become an influence you know yes um, i think by about 1985 or 86 I was good enough to, you know, to be able to play Johnny Marr guitar parts, you know. So Wow, that's very was, impressive. Well, he was astonishing, you know, but um, hey, I'll play you something now. It just struck me. I, I didn't do this on purpose. This is, this is my room where I've got my guitar, yeah, you know, so I didn't bring it up especially to play you this. But I just remembered when I was, um, this is the riff from our first single, uh, which is The World Is, you know. Yes. So, so you, I, I can illustrate to you exactly what I mean about the Johnny Marr thing. So... This is my riff, so it's like. So, you know, that's what it is. It's, it sounds so much like the Smiths now. Yes. So when I, I don't know if you could hear it, but when I wrote that, it felt very much like my own, you know? So it's like, uh, but we, um, I suppose. It does sound it does sound quite derivative to my ears now, as if it could be a Johnny Mark guitar line, you know. But you want to, you've got to start. You've got well, to start he's, somewhere. He's quite a plucker, isn't he, dear old Johnny? He does like to pluck, so I think that. Oh, he what, does. Yeah. That, that and, I, and I always. That always I, helps I always, a lot. I always pluck my guitar too, so it's like. But so um, when, because during that period, one thing that I sort of have come across that I didn't realise until I was doing it was the important, uh, there was the gatekeepers. We had these kind of people in the yeah. year, which was like hugely influential, even though I expect his listening kind of figures were very small compared to Steve Wright in the afternoon. And then yeah, you had yeah. papers like the NME, Melody Maker, Sounds and mm. Record Mirror. And, you know, yeah. and, and every town had these kind of, you know, like alternative venues or uh, mm. alternative club nights or indie nights or whatever they were called. So that kind of yeah. helped people sort of create their kind of, I suppose, you know, craft really. It helped them to sort of, sort of get. Yeah. So, so that was quite mm. an important thing. So how did your band sort of progress? Because mm. you obviously got a John Peel session, which must have been fantastic. Yeah, we did. Well, well we, um, it was, it was ab absolutely an um, incredible time for us. And he wouldn't actually believe the story, you know, but um, we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed for a couple of years, you know, from 1985 through to the summer of 1986. That's all we really did. The Tetley music scene and Swansea music scene wasn't very good. So we didn't really get, um, we didn't get to play live very often, but we got to write a lot, you know? So yeah. uh, um, we're writing probably, you know, um, a song a week or, you know, maybe even two. And then we rehearsed them and then we discarded and we moved on to a new batch until we got, you know, good enough to make a demo, which is what we did. We, so we made a demo up in a place called Comturch in the Swansea Valley. It was the first ever demo that we did, yeah? Um, and we sent it to uh, Cherry Red Records in London, yeah? To Mike, to Mike Allway. Uh, right. The great impresario, and he was at the time he was he was with Cherry Red. He also was with L Records, and I think he'd also obviously had involvement with Blanco Negro Records as well. But we loved the Monochrome Set, and we loved Vic Goddard, and we loved um, the Pillars and Prayers album. Like we yes. adored that. One and, um, so, yeah, I, and we sort of um, we just decided, well, you know, we'll send a demo tape to Cherry Red, which we did, and they uh, they signed us. <laughs> on the strength of our first demo tape. Um, they invited us up to London in Christmas of 1986. Right. Um, more or less two years after we'd formed. And we met Mike Galway in, um, in a, uh, a place in uh, Bayswater, uh, you know, and uh, we, 
we, um, we met him at a coffee house there and they basically said they, want, they wanted to sign us, you know? So they signed us up on our first demo, which was, which was unbelievable. And, mm-hmm. um, and after that, then we went with Richard Preston shortly afterwards to record our first single, which was the one I just played, Do The World Is. Yes. Um, and then we had, you know, lots of coverage in The Enemy and Melody Maker and Sounds, etc. Um, we did, we played a few gigs up in London, um, although not many, really, but yeah. we came up to, to sort of play. There was never a sense for Chair Red, actually, uh, at all, of promoting um, the records that we were doing. Um, we sort of just, you know, we, we made these records. Um, we, did, we didn't gig them. We didn't tour or anything of that kind, yeah? yeah. We weren't sort of like a, we weren't a jobbing band at all. And Cherry Red didn't have that attitude towards their bands, you know? It was a case of, it was all about the, the songs and about making the records, you know? So um, Michael, we kind of took us under his wing then, um, and as a, uh, as I said, it wasn't it wasn't until 1989 that we got the Peel session, by, and by that time, by that time, we parted company with um, uh, with uh, Cherry Red, as it happens. So we'd um, we'd um, so I'm telling the story a little bit out of order, but we we released one one um, 12 inch EP with them, and then one album. Um, we'd signed to them for five albums. Uh, but we re- we only released one, which was the Magic of, which was yes. our our first and only album with Cherry. So did Red you get Records. did you get a massive advance, or was it not that way? Oh no no no! This is this is a, yeah this to tell the story. No, we didn't at all. I can tell you exactly what the advance we got was seven hundred and fifty quid. Excellent. So it was, uh, <laughs> that was the advance that we had. I remember hearing that the Darling Buds at that time. I think they I think they'd signed. And I think they got an advance of like 300 grand or something on their first album. We were wondering, well, you know, but that was 750 pounds, exactly. Uh, but it wasn't, as I said, Cherry Red were a very well-known album. Yes. But there was not a lot of money knocking around. It wasn't like that at all. It was just like, as I said, it was all about the tunes. It was all about the, um, I think, you know, um, the, the design of the records, the ethos of Cherry Red was, was very, very cool. They were a really cool label and everybody attached to it were really cool. Yes. Um, you know, they were really cool people. But we, um, I think we were, in many ways, we were, we were just kids. We weren't cool at all. Um, as I said, we were just doing what we loved doing. We really were. It was invested with complete passion, commitment. Um, we didn't know a thing. We didn't know anything. You know, we just, you know, our uh, musical reference points were the jam, you know. <laughs> Um, obviously, the Smiths <clears throat> and Orange Juice and, uh, and and all the others I mentioned. They were they were very uh, mainstream, you know, sort of uh, yeah. Just we were just ordinary working class kids, really. And were you? Because I because I remember being yeah. obsessed with John Peel and recording the show, his show, yeah. especially in the eighties. That was probably my period. I mean, yeah. there was that that time when he was playing a lot of Welsh bands, wasn't there? He was. He was making, yeah. Making a point of saying right. So I can remember one, Daft Luggy, but there was a lot of other ones, which yeah. I can't remember. But did you sort of feel that kind of excitement? Because at the same time, you had the indie pop world, then you had all this kind of world, the world music thing with, the, you know, the Bundu boys, and then he was playing stuff yeah. like Public Enemy and LL Cool J and Roxy Chante. And then, you know, so yeah. there was a lot of kind of music about there. So did you feel that your timing was like, oh, yes, this is going terribly well. <laughs> We're sort of there. Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting, you know, question and I can, or, or an interesting point, and I can see why you might think that, but it was, um, it, it wasn't like that really. We'd, um, I think when, the, the bands like, for instance, that bloody Anne Revan was another one. Oh, um, nice. And there were a number of, but they were, they were all um, Welsh language bands. 
and the difference between the Hepburns and uh, and, the, and the other Welsh bands that um, that uh, Peel was playing at the time was they were they were Welsh language bands. I think he loved that about them. You know, yeah. I think there was a certain mystique about uh, about hearing Welsh, you know, um, and pop songs together. Yeah. It was always. Uh, I mean, I loved I, I loved you know listening to them. I loved the fact you know that he was playing Welsh bands, but we didn't have the same identity as that. Not really. Like you know, we'd. Um, well, I didn't. I, I identified more with bands from Manchester than I did with bands from Wales. You know, so did I you, loved. Were you excited about the Darling Buds because they were obviously must have felt like not complete kindred spirits, but quite close. Yeah, that. Yeah, I mean that. That's that's more. We. I think we more more kindred say with bands like the Darling Buds. They were from Newport. Again, yeah. it's like we were from West Wales. They're from East Wales. And the, Car- the Cardiff, you know, um, music scene was was relatively healthy. It, it's, it sounds petty, doesn't it? But there, there are there are lots of different Waleses. There really are, you know. Yes. I mean, you live in the uh, you live in the, you know sort of the, the far east of England. You know what I mean? That yes. I imagine it must be like a million miles from London in a way. And you know, where we were in West Wales and Carmarthenshire is completely different from. Uh, from from East Wales, you know, it's like um, it's a very very rural, very pastoral sort of area, you know. And um, we were we were in um, I think they um, a guy called Chris Roberts in the Melody Maker when he visited us, he just realised a just how ordinary and normal we were, <laughs> yes. you know, and how far away from everything we were. We were just um, we were just in this glorious isolation, really, you know. Um, and so no. I, I, I could just say yes, you know, it was, you know, it was that I felt a sense of identity with these other Welsh bands, but it isn't true. You know, mm-hmm. we were like sort of, um, I think we were in our own little West Walian bubble, um, doing whatever, you know, whatever came naturally to us, really. And like, for instance, you know, we never gigged with these bands, you know, we, we, ne- we were never in touch with them. We didn't know them. Yeah. And, um, and as I said, it was always, it was always ever, um, I, I never thought about the, nation, the nation, nationality of it at all. I just, you know, that um, it was just, yeah, mostly, most of the bands I loved at the time were English bands anyway. Because um, and, cause most yeah. bands that I've interviewed, they, you know, they, there is the classic five-year narrative, you know, where they, they get together yeah. and you have like 12 months rehearsing, John Peel yeah. gives it a play, then a John Peel session, then they yeah. do a bit more touring around the country, you know, rather than just yeah. in front of people they know. And then that first album, things generally can be quite good. Then the tricky second album or third, but sometimes it's the second because <laughs> they're kind of... The, prog- the progression is quite a difficult one because often there isn't that much money that's been made, so people are feeling a bit broke still, and the kind yeah. of novelty of being in the band doesn't feel quite so exciting. And and sometimes, yeah. you know, they you know, and creating the second album can be hard as well. I know that's a cliche, mm. but but the lack mm. of money and progress often kind of gives people that feeling of well, do we really want yeah. to? So you re- re- released, you know, the Magic mm. of the Hepburns, which was 88. Mm. Then you had the John mm. Peel session. But then mm. the other thing that happened, the Smiths broke up in 87. You had the mm. world that then suddenly there was mm. this like, okay, let's have dance music. So a lot of those indie bands mm. that I loved kind of were breaking up by then because they were like, yeah. we're not going to be the Stone Roses, the Happy Mondays, Soup Dragons, yeah. the Primal mm. Scream, because we're just not that bothered anymore. We're not taking ecstasy, and then you had that kind of <laughs> two days, and then you had grunge. So a lot of bands kind of bombed out, really. So how did what was your kind of narrative? Yeah, well, that's uh, you know, it's uh, it's great to be able to, to to think back on and you know to be able to tell this story because I've I've never done it before. So when I'm talking to you, I'm sort of um, I'm you know I'm piecing together the story actually. You know, <laughs> but what you just said is exactly what it was like. There was the C eighty six, you know, uh, yes. phenomenon. 
the famous um, tape. And, you know, the, na the narrative of that time was one you're probably familiar with is the NME kind of created, uh, you know, a yes. phenomenon which it then it then turned on and savaged, you know, and, uh, you know, I know that there was it was kind of like, you know, anything that was jangly or anything of that kind, you know, was uh, was going to be. Yeah. You know, it was in a sense, obviously, we signed with Cherry Red and when we were releasing those records in 87 and 88, I think that sort of jangle pop was already, you know, going out of fashion. You know what yeah. I mean? It was. Uh, but that, as, as I as I've said, that didn't bother us at all. We just did what we did. You know, it's you know we we um, you know we we wrote those tunes. We we loved the stuff that we were doing. You know, we loved. We wouldn't have done it otherwise unless we really you know um, enjoyed writing and playing it lyrically. Anyway, lyrically, you know, um, that was one of the big parts of playing. Not just the music and the singing, but but lyrically, you know, I um, I felt that I had something to write about and always did and had a point to make. Yeah, and it was um, you know whatever that point was, but the, so um, I I don't think that the um, you know uh, the fact that that sort of music did go out of fashion, um, and then another kind of music you know came into fashion, and then of course you know it was that wasn't I was never going to be um, interested in writing um, you know music which was like the Stone Roses you know which was that sort of sort of stadium rock thing, which was big, pompous yeah. guitar led, but rock guitar, you know? I mean, Johnny Marr may have actually, you know, leaned in that direction a little bit, you know, but the Smiths weren't about that for me. The Smiths were about to, obviously the combination of sort of Johnny's like melodic guitar playing and the, the brilliance and the beauty of that, yeah. allied with Morrissey's just fantastic voice and, and lyrics. There was nothing to match it. And, and nothing that came along after that really for me did, you know, not yeah, really. I, know, I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, I enjoyed Happy Mondays and I enjoyed, you know, um, Sun, I'm 30, I only went with your mother because 30. It's a funny line, you know, and I enjoyed the whole, the working class aspect of it. I could yes. relate to that, I suppose, you know, but, uh, but musically it was, you know, it was, yeah, it wasn't, it, you know, it, it didn't really work for me. Like, but I, I'd already discovered as we had, you know, what we wanted to do, but, we were we were a, a lot more though than just um, a jangly pop band. We'd already discovered, um, you know, a sort of um, our you know our influences like Jake Thackeray, Burt Baccarat, Ennio Morricone, John Barry, all this film score stuff. Uh, that was a strong part of our identity. If you want to go back to Magic of the Headphones, you'll see it's very very diverse. You know, um, and we were really iconoclastic. We we were overjoyed in our unpopularity and we used to taunt the music press at that stage like you know about the um you know i mean i'm thinking back of one um not, not chris roberts there's another guy dave jennings that's right mm -hmm. <laughs> i remember the mld maker there you know we we knew you know that uh that that kind of c86 thing was it was was on was on the downward um, and it was kind of funny the way that the journalists you know were reacting you know to to, to the whole thing um it was just faddish like you know and um yes i think you know, I think we just wanted to, we were going to carry on doing what we were doing and the less popular it became because we were so bloody minded, the more we were intent on doing it, you know, and, um, and we, we knew anyway, like, you know, that, um, that, that this was going to be a, um, that we were going to have longevity and that we'd carry on doing what we did because we were never prone to any kind of fads or fashion. We didn't, we genuinely did not care what London-based music journalists felt about us. Yeah. Uh, we just loved doing what we did. So we kept on, we kept on doing that, and we kept on bringing the most outrageous influences, especially easy listening, because we knew how much that always gets up people's noses. You know, it's like, yes. you know, um, uh, it became quite fashionable to like John Barry and Burt Baccarat. It really wasn't at the time. It really wasn't. You know, it was like a case of, but the more we, um, the more like we, you know, sort of uh, heard 
like the soundtrack to Barbarella or the more we listen to the soundtrack for A Fistful of Dollars or, uh, you know, or whatever else. Uh, we, you know, we'd, um, you know, we'd bring those influences in simply because we knew that they would be sneered at, you know, so it became quite an antagonistic thing. And of course, after that, we were just roundly ignored anyway. Um, but the narrative, what the narrative is, is that um, um, the 90s was quite a, bar a barren period in terms of having any support, you know, and, and at that point, we could quite easily have just become a band who, exactly what you just said, who flourished briefly with with Cherry Red, had a John Peel session and disappeared forever. But it, but it, it wasn't like that. You know, we sort of, um, we, we persevered and eventually towards the end of the 90s, uh, we found a guy over in America, Alexander Bailey and Radio Cartoon Records, who, um, who enjoyed what we did, you know, and who loved, um, uh, he loved Cherry Red and he loved um, the type of indie music, you know, that, that we love, that you love. Yes. Um, and, he, and, he, and he saw that and he heard that in our, um, in our music. I think by that time, um, you know, the, the wheel had come full circle. I think by that time it was cool again to be, um, to be like an indie guitar band. And especially for an American like Alexander, um, who at that time was, he got um, a number of artists from Europe and also Anthony, Anthony Rochester from Australia as well, you know, on this Radio Khartoum imprint. Um, and the sort of music was very much like early Cherry Red and L Records, you know, Alexander was really into his British, and European bands, especially if it was that C86 type of music, especially if it was quite, you know, if it was tuneful, if yes. it was, well, all, the, all those attributes, you know, that, um, that we talked about and the storytelling he really loved. Um, so we found so, a home so, again. So know? was he just a kind of slightly eccentric chap who just had this as a hobby? Well, he, he kind of was, yeah, a radio cartoon. I mean, that's a fairly good description. You know, he was, a uh, radio cartoon was this, what he used to call a loose collective, you know, of like-minded people. So he run it out of Berkeley, you know, he's incredible aficionado, like of all different types of, uh, of really cool music, you know, um, who would laugh at my lack of knowledge, like of micro genres and so on, you know, and, uh, but yeah, he knew what he liked and um, he had this, you know, sort of, uh, and he was quite eccentric, but a huge music fan, a big record buyer. Um, and he just sniff out this talent all around the globe. You know, it was like right. um, Test Build from Sweden, Anthony from Tasmania, ourselves from Wales and it was whatever he liked you know and he just sort of put it out there on the radio cartoon so there was some fantastic stuff on there it was um, there was really there was test build it was Cessna there was um, it was uh, who else was there there was was obviously Anthony there was ourselves um, there was there was all sorts of bands like from um, said Norway Sweden Scandinavia in particular uh, but also, as I said, from uh, from other parts of the world too. So whatever he um, whatever he liked, and it, and it so, wasn't. Yeah. So yeah. so the Hep the Hepburns never actually split up. They never sort of had a moment. No, no, no. We never did. No, we we've been going for thirty five years. So so, you, so during the nineties, it was more of a period that you just there wasn't a lot kind of coming out, but you were definitely not sort of giving it up. No, no, no. Exactly. We you know we we just carried on, and it was. Um, that that was a, there were a lot of very uh, successful Welsh bands at the time, but they were they were rock bands, you know, Stereophonics, Catatonia, um, uh, the Super Furries. I absolutely adore and always have done, and yeah. I don't class them in with. Well, Catatonia and, and um, um, the Stereophonics were they were rock bands, you know, they were they were stadium bands. Our, the, our, Manics, we, the Manics were the same, weren't they? Really, the, the Manics again, of course. Yeah, probably the the best known of the lot. Um, and they were, uh, of course, the Manics were hugely scornful of C86 and of indie music. Like, um, 
you know, uh, I, I do recall, like we, we rehearsed in the same rehearsal rooms as the Manics in Cardiff, you know, uh, in, in Sound Space Studios. And they were, uh, we couldn't get over how very, uh, how short they were. <laughs> <laughs> actually, the drummer, the dr I always thought the drummer looked really short, actually. Yeah, yeah, but J James, James as well is quite short, you know. I mean, he's also quite hard, so I shouldn't say, you know, uh, too no, much. No, no, no. But, they, um, but their record company got, bought them, like, um, um, like um, rehearsal time in, this, in Sound Space Studios. So they'd rehearse in there, and we, so we'd be downstairs or, or next door in a really cheap one that we were paying £5 an hour for. And the record company would have, they were in there, like, you know, week in, week out, rehearsing for a tour or for an album or something. Mm. But yeah, we, we never talked to them, but we'd, we'd brush shoulders, we'd pass in the corridor, you know. But yeah, it was, that was never going to be our era. We, we, you know, we, we're not a bad life bands, but we, you know, um, we're more, you know, we don't rock. You know, we are, the st in this, the studio is kind of, and always has been our domain. And, you know, writing and, you know, just working out, um, you know, new tunes, new lyrics, new stories, but, uh, and, you know, bringing in, um, you know, as many of our influences as we can. This, is, this has been a really, um, I'm kind of like leaping forward a bit, but, you know, the Radio Cartoon era was like, or has been a very, very sort of, you know, a brilliant time for us. I, um, it's been like 20 years now, you know. Yes. Um, um, but this era at the moment, like, is, is pretty good for us right now as well. But, uh, but we, um, like, you know, we sort of withstood all the, uh, you know, the, the sort of passage of time really hasn't um, hasn't really affected us greatly. And you haven't, um, and also you haven't had a huge turnover of members either, have you? No, no, no. Well, three of the four original members are still in the band, and the guitar player um, Andrew, who left the band a few quite a few years ago, lives in the same town as us still, and we still meet, and we still see each other, and we still, yes. you, know, you know, we're still we're still friends. So um, yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it's quite it's quite a story when you come to think of it. It's, uh, but for us, you know, honestly, the reason for the longevity is it, it, really, it really wouldn't have mattered to us, whatever the current music trends were, it, wouldn't, um, it, it never mattered to us our terms of like what success was. It sounds incredibly trite and almost infantile, really. But it was, ne it, it was never anything other than just make, making the music. That was all we were interested in. And we, ne we never had any objectives in terms of... Um, fame, fortune and making money, you see. So, yes. you know, so. so is it, has it always been the case? Because I have spoke to a few people who have balanced this of like, well, we've got yeah. our day job and that's good. And then in yeah. the evening and weekends, we're in the band and we take that equally seriously. But it has to be yeah. that way around, you know, a few hours mm. in the evenings, probably most days working on the on the music and then during the day kind of, mm. you know, working elsewhere. Is that is that the kind of general setup of the band as well? Yeah, that, that's right. Well, um, now Howell has been a Howell was a pharmacist when we were signed to Cherry Red. He's, he's been a pharmacist since he left university. Mike's Mike's a teacher. Um, for, I, I've been again, you know, in and out of employment throughout my life. I never had a, a, a career, put it that way. Yeah. Um, but um, and not until very recently, when I uh, I became a university lecturer after I got my PhD a couple of years ago. So so it's just been um, it was it was that I think. There's another way to put it, though, if you see what I mean, okay? It's like, it was definitely, I suppose, when we first formed, it was always this kind of thing, as most bands probably did think, that the band had to be the career, you know? So, um, but that, that's, there's no way is that really going to work, except for a very tiny number of people, and only then for a very short time. Um, you know, the whole idea of it being a career ne never made any sense to me at all. So, yeah, it's like, 
I suppose that other people might think, well, yeah, there's the day job and then there's your hobby. That's completely wrong. You know, it's not like that at all. It's, it's been my life. You know, it's mm-hmm. been my absolute life. It's just that it wasn't a career. That's the thing. Because a career is something that you make money out of. A career is something you pay the rent with. You know, a career yeah. is something that you're a part of a business. You know, I don't think I ever would have been interested in any such thing. You know, it's always, it's always been something that, you know, you do, as I said, compulsively. And I think that's misguided, the whole idea that it, that it has to be a career or a hobby. It isn't. It's, it's your life's work. You know, it's no different than, than, um, than any other art form. You know, it's something that you, that you do. If you can make a living out of it, then good luck to you. You're very lucky, but I don't think you will for, for, for very long. And when well, you're 57, I, like I am now, nobody, you know, no, it's not going to be a career, you know, for, no. you know, for, you know for, for somebody 57, unless you already made a career back in, you know, when you were 20, you know? I guess, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's kind of much more realistic because actually then yeah. you're not having that moment of thinking, oh, well, let's just forget the music, forget the band, that's the end of that. But it, it, yeah. you know, it seems a bit of a shame because a lot of the people I've interviewed, you know, were those people from that 80s period and they were on the front of the NME and they were in the charts and they probably gave music up a bit, but they've kind of come back to it and they've balanced it with their other job and other... Yeah, yeah. And they're kind of enjoying it and they're not going to be playing in front of a huge audience and they don't even, no, no. and they don't want to go on tour because, you know, it's physically exhausting. And also, you know, they can't give that much time, but they'll play the odd gig. And I think that's, that, that yeah. balance is quite important. But once you oh. get that in your brain, you think, oh yeah, that's absolutely fine. That's what we can do. It is, it is like we were talking earlier about um, the benefits of what we're doing right now, you know, and uh, whatever they are. I think that as you get older, that um, you know, there's rather than an either-or mentality, like you know, you you know, you get used to, don't you, a sort of a, a Schrodinger's cat sort of mentality where where, think, where it can be two things at once, if you know. What yes. I mean, where it's like, you know, it's and it's never either-or. And I think you know, maturity make, makes you realise this. You know, it's um, if it if it diminished your sense of worth as a songwriter or an artist that you weren't making money then you need to rethink that. You know, you've got to rethink that. It's a case of, and as I said, there is no, there is no, there's not a polarity between a career and a hobby. It's not a hobby. It's exactly, as I said, if it's something that you, you know, that, if, that you believe in and, and that, you, that you love doing, that you want to do, you know, then you should do it and never feel self-conscious or in any way a failure because you didn't make a career out of it because that only happens for a tiny amount of people. Yes. And it would be a terrible shame if people stopped doing it because of a lack of self-worth because because they weren't appreciated or they weren't making huge amounts of money. You should do it anyway. But I'm saying, um, this, this particular era now, uh, for a number of reasons, like especially for a band like us who never really gigged much anyway, is really great. I mean, you know, the, the connection like that we've had with um, people during, during lockdown, for instance. You know, we, we did a, um, there was a, a, um, a coronavirus um, uh, lockdown album where Welsh bands got together and they... Uh, did cover versions, firstly of the Beatles' Revolver, that was the first cover versions album, then there was a Velvet Underground one that we contributed to, yeah, you know? Right. So, so we're all in isolation, none of us are even like meeting up with our families or anything, but but via, via um, the internet and via garage bands and via like, the, oh we're all stuck in our house, We it was a 32 track album of cover versions of Velvet Underground, you know? And they're all, well, not, they're not all fantastic, but a load of them are absolutely brilliant, you know, joyful. 
uh, interpretations of it. We did what goes on, like, you know, so it's like, it's of, you can find it on Bandcamp as part of this, like, you know, coronavirus thing. Oh, but, I, I, we all, um, I, I recorded, like, you know, my bit of my house, Howell did his in his house, Mike did his um, in his house in Llanbandes. We never met. We never even, like, talked over the phone to discuss it. Like, we just did each, each other's, you know, parts. And then we, uh, we, you know, we put it on the album. So, so like, this is, a, this is an era of opportunity, provided you think it, like, like what we're discussing now, like, everything's an opportunity. You know yes. what I mean? It's like, um, and, you don't, and you don't get depressed because you're not making money or it's not a job. Because, you know, that's just ridiculous. It's like, you know, I can, I can write an entire album on GarageBand on my phone. You know, it's like, uh, because it's got, you know, it's got everything I need anyway. I'm not, I'm not fussy that, you know, that the electric piano isn't a real electric piano. It sounds nice. It sounds great to me. You yes. know, and um, yeah. So, so as so, I said, yeah, I, think it's, I, think, I think it's with that sort of flexible frame of mind and, and everything that the tech can offer you now, it, honestly, it really genuinely has never been better. You know, it's just, you know, do whatever you want to do. Like, just, you know, and, uh, and, and as I said, I've just finished recording an album uh, on, on my phone, the phone I'm talking to you on now, like, you know, and uh, yes. uh, sort of um, part of this, we did our own lockdown album. Yeah. You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah so it, it'll be out shortly. I'll, um, you'll have to give me your address, by the way, because I'll send you a copy of it. Yeah? Oh, that'll be brilliant. Away. So look, just, yeah. just one last, one, one kind of question to what, well, what would you, you know, if you were to say something or could say some advice to your 18 year old self, I just wondered... <laughs> what that would be because obviously you know, <laughs> you've got you've got well, you've got a career or not a career a life yeah. of music which is quite unusual you know and and you managed to sort of duck and dive and weave around so you know it's been pretty impressive but I just wonder what you would have said to your an 18 well well I would um that, that's a lovely question actually I would um I feel very still very much in touch with my 18 year old self in many many regards I hardly changed at all you know um, and I would definitely say to him, you know, do ex do exactly what it is that you know that you want to do. Like you know, you know, ca carry on the way you are. You know, don't don't alter one iota. Like you know, from you know from what you are doing. You know, yeah. you know, obviously believe believe in it. But the belief is, was never a problem. I would say, you know, to him, I think if there is, if there are like rough patches up ahead, like when you when you are inclined to think. You know, whatever is going on around you, say in music, for instance, you know, if any you find any of that stuff undermining, then stick to your guns and do, you know, what it is that, you know, that you want to do. Like, you know, don't pay too much attention to trends or fads, um, you know, and just believe like, you know, in the, in the things that you always believed in, which for me um, are lyrics with a story, lyrics with a point and melodies and tunes and 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 harmonies, you know, and all those things, you know, just uh, just keep on doing it, you know, and don't be dissuaded like by anybody or anything, you know, that it, you know, that there, that there is a, you know, that it's anything other than what you should do. And, yes. that, and that it has an intrinsic value and that, you know, things come and go, you know, but, um, you know, but to, in order to keep that passion going, you know, don't be deterred and don't be undermined and just believe in it. And, uh, and just keep on, you know, just keep on going, you know, yes. whatever happens, you know. Yeah. That's what I tell him. I, I think my, my, my 18 year old self would understand exactly what I was saying. Um, and I think his belief was always unshakable. Uh, and I'm kind of proud of him for that, if you know what I mean. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, it's interesting, because yeah. you mentioned just two points. 
Because mm. Burt Bacharach did an album with Elvis Costello. I don't know if you came across that particular. Yeah, album. I do. I know it well. Yeah. But, but yeah. we went to see him. We went to see them live. You know, they did three dates, I think, or two dates in London. Mm. And I was, you know, a huge fan, and I loved that album. So we went down to see it. Yeah. And that was an amazing night, and it was an amazing yeah. album. But the other, so that was just put mm. that in there. But the other thing yeah. is, how have your voice? Uh, have you how have you managed to sort of save your vocals and voice over the years? And I just wonder how much that's that's changed as well, because obviously that's your main instrument. Well, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's it's nothing short of a miracle, actually. I think it's um, I still uh, I still got a powerful voice. I think if anything, it's it's actually um, recently it, it seems to have improved. I've um, I've, uh, I've been much more conscious of my vocals over the last couple of years. Um, and I've like improved the accuracy of what I'm doing. Um, upper register of my voice is still there. Um, so that slight falsetto, um, uh, I, I tend towards that actually. So if any, the instrument has actually got a bit better. I don't know how, I'm just incredibly lucky. I, I keep very fit. I do like, um, you know, uh, like lots of cycling. I always swim a lot. And, and during the pandemic, like I've walked, been walking two or three times a day. So my lung capacity is good. Yeah. But I've just been incredibly lucky. Like my vocal cords are still intact, um, and I would like to think, without being too fanciful about it, um, it's because you know you do it instinctively and unthinkingly. Um, and you know, as I said, that, I mean, maybe that isn't, maybe that's not logical or reasonable, but because it comes from here, you know, um, and I've, ne I've never been self-conscious about it. It's just something that I, that I always do. Um, you know, it's like, um, it's just still there and it, it never kind of went away. Yeah, I mean, physically, you know, it's just a fluke, I suppose. It's just lucky. But, yeah. um, but, but nonetheless, it is still there. And um, uh, maybe because I carried on doing it as well. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe mm -hmm. I never, you know, I think this is it, isn't it? You know, never stop to look behind you, you know, just keep on going in that direction. <laughs> uh, yes. Maybe maybe because I'm still 18 in my own mind in many ways, you know, in a good way, you know. Yes. I've matured in other ways, but I never stopped to think about it, you know, so maybe that's the answer, you know, I never got self-conscious about it, it never became a cerebral process, you know, maybe it's just a purely physical thing, like, and um, so my voice is just still there, you know, but it, I, I'm glad it is, though. Yeah, yeah so. absolutely, and it's, it's great, and as you said, don't, don't look behind you, just keep I going know. forwards, this is the, this yes. is the thing, isn't it, really? It, it, it is, dude, that's right, right. Yes. Well, it's been a great joy talking to you, I've really, really enjoyed it. And that was me in conversation with Matt Jones from the Hepburns. A massive thank you to Matt for giving me the time for that interview. Um, if for some random reason you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C at C86show. Um, keep it positive, please. <laughs> well, don't bother. And um, yes, these have all been archived. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just check them out. There are hundreds. But anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.